The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Label Wolf now presents his lecture, Jewish Meditation, What, Why, and How. If you enter into Google land and look up what is meditation, you'll get hundreds and hundreds of different versions. One of the clear aspects of the word is that no one uses it in exactly the same way. So we all use the word meditation in a very, very generalized form. But when we peer into the methodologies and the pathways, we find a huge variety, and it can mean almost anything. So what I'd like to do is to go through the notes initially with you for the first, say, 10 minutes or so, and then I want to practice three time-permitting meditation exercises with you to show you the scope and certainly within the Jewish, Jewish spiritual arena. So what is meditation, as you see in the notes? Does it mean thinking deeply? Does it mean you have to adopt a physical pose? Or is it the opposite, not thinking, emptying the mind? Is it a matter of focusing on, a sub on an object or a thought? Is it simply enjoying a sunset? Is it introspection and self-scrutiny? Or is it contemplation? Or is it the word mindfulness, which is used so much in terms of meditation, and the two words converge in many ways and aren't distinguished at all? So the first thing to note is that meditation probably covers every single one of these descriptions. So there's a huge range as to what meditation might mean. As to whether there is a right way or a wrong way, I assure you, if someone says to you, my way is the right way, steer clear of that person. Because the word meditation is so general, there isn't any right and wrong whatsoever. On the contrary, It depends very, very much on what is the goal and the purpose of that pathway that you happen to be engaged in. Is it necessary? Is it desirable? Is it a form of escapism? Is it a passing fad? Probably all of these. And I suspect that meditation is far from necessary. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, in a very celebrated uh, discourse in 1979, dedicated to the subject of meditation, says quite clearly, it's not a necessary activity in the generalized way that society has adopted it. So don't think for one moment that if you're not in a meditative format, somehow you're missing out on some essentiality of life. On the other hand, 
it can be used as a very, very important and useful tool if you use it specifically for a specific goal. Is meditation a Buddhist or Hindu creation, a Jewish creation, or is it a human creation? Or is it a normal everyday activity which each one of us does without realizing it when we focus momentarily on something? So we're all human beings and the aptitude for focusing is human. It's true that in the 60s and 70s, some very enterprising Hindu gurus made their way across to the West and introduced their form of meditation, which caught on to a generation that was seeking mind expansion. And with the promise of mind expansion, it became very attractive. But we have to beware, because not all aspects of Hindu meditation is useful, far from it. There are elements of it that are downright harmful to the Jewish soul. Now, in what way can a meditation be harmful to a soul? I can't go into details here today, but except to suggest to you the teaching that says there are 71 different soul systems in creation. Jewish is one of them. There's another 70. And each soul system has its own diet, spiritual diet, that is appropriate for it. And when you start to eat food that is inappropriate for your makeup and nature, it can cause upset. That's the metaphor of where you can horribly go wrong when you use Aveda Zora aspects, idol worship aspects for a Jewish soul. So that's just a cautionary note. Is meditation remedial, therapeutic? Is it merely insightful? Is it relaxation response? Is it spiritual? Is it faddish? All of the above. So I'm hoping that in this little uh, episode of what is meditation, I've made it very clear that there is no one format of meditation and that meditation itself is a nebulous term. So in Judaism, we're much more pragmatic. We look at the mechanics of the activity rather than a word description of it. So. I'm going to use the word meditation as an aspect of focusing. Or, if you want to use the Hasidic terminology, an aspect of da'at in the triad of Chochmah, Bina, and da'at. Chochmah is giving birth to a thought. Bina is its development through analysis, giving that idea breadth, depth, and then there's da'at, focusing on that thought to such a degree that emotions begin to flow. So I've just described a process. You don't have to be able to assimilate what I just said, but it's a more pragmatic understanding of what meditation is. It's the third aspect of mind, which is a subset of da'at. 
Now, I know you understand modern Hebrew da'at to mean knowledge, but don't forget we're using a very, very specialized use of the language in any system. So if you were to be an inst a constitutional lawyer and talking about the constitution, words would be very different in meaning than the same word in Shakespearean literature, even though it were to be the same word. So likewise here, when we use the word da'at in a very specialized sense, we mean focusing to own the idea. Okay, so this is a little bit about the what aspect of it. But more importantly, I think, is the why. Why meditate? And you can give me many answers. Many answers would include, I'm sure, amongst you, it feels really good first thing in the morning. And it certainly does. So would a stroll in the countryside. So would reading a beautiful piece of poetry. So would having coffee with a close friend. So yes, it is a way of allowing your mind to move away from some of the negative aspects of life that tend to assail the mind. But is it necessarily the only way to do so? The traditional Chabad and the general mode of meditation we use is called Hisboinanus. What is Hisboinanus? It comes from the root Bina, Hitbonanut. It's the reflexive form of the verb. Reflexive means affecting oneself. So Hitbonanut means to allow understanding to flow through you. So let me describe how I would practice it in the morning. Before davening, I would study a wisdom teaching of one of the Rebbe's. After studying that wisdom teaching, I would focus on one aspect of it, but so profoundly and deeply that it becomes ingrained within me. And once it becomes ingrained within me to the extent that Jewish meditation permits, it becomes part of my behavioral repertoire throughout the day and it was sufficiently repeated throughout my life. So that's a particular use of focusing technique for a specific goal. And here is my main message. You don't meditate because meditation is good. You meditate because there's a purpose, there's a goal. Meditation per se is no different than breathing and eating, but you breathe because you need to oxygenate the body, and you eat because you need to provide fuel and energy. You meditate for specific purposes. So that's a very first precaution. Have a goal for the meditation. Jewish goals are several. One of them is the one that I just enunciated to become wiser in the way that you respond to the exigencies of everyday life. But something as simple, which is quite popular, relief of anxiety and worry, is a completely legitimate reason 
to meditate if the meditation serves that purpose, which is Dr. Herbert Benson in the 80s demonstrated the relaxation response mechanism. Why is that important for Jewish people and all people? Because in a agitated state, the neshama doesn't flow optimally through the mind and body. Not only that, worry and anxiety affect our body adversely down to the cellular level. Mind and body correlate. The way you think, the way you feel, changes the chemistry of the body. And if it should be negative, God forbid, for a very long time, then it will cause a permanent chemical imbalance. For example, clinical depression. And the only way you can overcome clinical depression is not by meditation. Although a lot of people want to believe that that would be so. But since clinical depression means a chemical imbalance that has now become permanently part of your makeup, the only way to alleviate it is to change the chemical balance. And that's what we use medicine for. I'm not at all anti-medicine. I am anti some doctors. You need to have a wise psychiatrist dosing you. And as the Rebbe often said, please make sure that that psychiatrist has your personal interests at heart. In fact, the Rebbe's words were, try to choose a doctor who is a friend. Because number one, much more care is taken. And number two, the relationship itself is part of the healing process. So many research experiments how bedside manner contributes to the recovery rate of a patient. So, the uh, whys, I think I've covered to some extent, and the ultimate goal for us is that we utilize it in a way that creates right thoughts, right words, and right actions, straight out of the Buddhist handbook. And that's correct. And by the way, just by way of a segue, of course you'll find Jewish teachings in Buddhism, in Hinduism, and elsewhere. Bits and pieces, certainly not all of it. And why? Because if you trace the history, as I explain in my book, the answer is it came from Abraham's sons, whom the Torah says he sent Le'eretz Kedem to the land of the east. And the Mepharshim, some of them explain Eretz Kedem as Hodu, India. In other words, there were bits and pieces of Abrahamic teachings that found their way to the East. So it's not surprising that in Zoroastrianism and all the others, you'll find bits and pieces coinciding. But that's just a little segue. Finally, by way of our little theoretical aspect, how? How do you meditate? Well, as I said earlier, we're all human beings. We have a universal design, by and large, as human beings. And therefore, we all, at times, think deeply and focus. Therefore, meditation cuts across all cultures. 
One of the primary goals is what we describe in Sefer Tanya as moyach shalit al-halev, that the mind should be able to determine the outcomes of the emotions, that the mind should shape the emotions, that we should become masterful with our feelings. And that's one of the very important goals of Jewish meditation. So I'm not going to uh, uh, go to any further discussion of some of the theoretical aspects. I hope that my summary now covers it. Meditation is a nebulous word that means so many things that it really means nothing. Two, the pragmatics of meditation is focusing. And three, one focuses on something for a reason. There's a goal and pathway. Okay? You've got more in the notes there, and you can read them at your leisure. What I'd like to do now is to see if we can do some meditative exercises. Now, I would have preferred if we had mats on the ground and each one of you would have found your space in a relaxed manner, but we work with whatever we have. And we have here a chair and a table. And that works very, very well, because there are no specific poses required. So why don't you just put things out of your hands and sit symmetrically in your chair, feet on the ground. Hands on your knees or thighs is good. On the desk is fine. And the first exercise I'd like to share with you is something that you're familiar with. And that's a breathing exercise, and to move to deep breathing. And you may be familiar that the Hebrew word for breath is neshima, and you probably know that the Hebrew word for soul is neshama, and it's clearly the two are related. How? Chassidus teaches us that the way we breathe reveals the manner in which the soul is coursing through the body. So if you breathe in an agitated state, which means short, gasping breaths, that reveals a little bit of the chaotic manner in which the neshama at that moment is going through your body, far from ideal. In fact, you might recall in the Chumash, where it says when Moshe Rabbeinu came to uh, the, uh, Egypt for the first time and spoke to the Jewish people, it says that they were under the state of Kotzer Ruach. And Rashi says that means that they were in a state of high stress, shortness of breath. So we're going to breathe deeply, abdominally, and realize as we go along how wonderful it is for the neshama to flow optimally through the body. And we'll do this gradually. So gently close your eyes and just focus on your breath, gently breathing in and breathing out. And if you can, Choose to breathe in and out through your nose. And as you do, become aware 
of the coolness of the air as it enters the nostrils and the relative warmth of the air as it leaves your nose. And just focus on that temperature differential, cool air entering, warm air exiting. And just be aware that your warmth can warm up your environment. Slow down and deepen the in-breath and the out-breath. Slowly, deeply through the nose. And now direct the breath down below your lungs to your abdomen with the in-breath. And the way to do that is, as you breathe in, expand your abdomen to collect the air, and then compress your abdomen to force the air out again. So let's do that slowly. Take a slow, deep breath in, expand the abdomen, allow the air to collect, pull in your tummy now, and allow the breath to leave. And practice that for a few breaths. It's a little counterintuitive. Breathing in, expanding your abdomen, and then pulling your abdomen in to breathe out. So just practice that for several breaths. So it seems that you're not breathing through the lungs, but seemingly through your abdomen that works like the pump. And you will have noticed at the back of your mind that you have tuned out from any other thoughts even environmental sounds and allowed yourself to relax. And something as powerful as this, just for 60 seconds if you can achieve it, has a remarkable effect on the efficacy of your body. And it's so pleasant Deep breath in, abdomen collects it, and then pull it in, expel it. And you're causing fresh air to oxygenate the body, and the waste products moving out of your body with the out-breath. Many people don't breathe out sufficiently so that the waste doesn't pass out through the air.
Focus once again on your nose, breathing in cool air and breathing out warm air. Once again now, become aware of your total body, your hands, move your fingers, move your toes, and gently open your eyes, coming all the way back here into the room. You're feeling just that little bit drowsier, but it's not drowsiness, it's relaxation. And it's a very short exercise, which you can do many times during the day, especially when you become aware of agitation and concern, and you want to break the cycle. This breaks the cycle very effectively. And as I said before, it normalizes the way that the neshama flows through the goof. And that's read and experienced as ple pleasantness, which is the way we should always be. Somewhere back in history, at the turn of the 19th century, there was a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Oscar Voigt. And Dr. Oscar Voigt took the research of a predecessor, a predecessor that used hypnosis to help clients and patients who were highly stressed, anxious, and the like. But Dr. Voigt said, you know, I can make this even easier because I find in my research that some of the symptoms of a person who relaxes is feeling heavy and feeling warm. That under the previous generations, hypnosis inducing heaviness and warmth, he said, why hypnosis? Let us simply encourage the client by themselves, by himself or herself, to create warmth and heaviness. And this works very, very effectively. So I'm going to take you through an exercise which he developed and has been used ever since remarkably well, combining imagery with inducing warmth and heaviness of the body. And you'll begin to realize how easy it is to induce states within yourself that are desirable. So once again, gently close your eyes, feet symmetrically on the ground, hands symmetrically in front of you on knees or desk. And once again, initially focus on your breath, Breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. And once again, being focused on cool air entering and warm air exiting.
and just be conscious and aware of that temperature differential as you breathe in and out slowly and deeply. I want you to imagine yourself in a pleasant warm bath or a spa. The water is still. It's pleasantly warm. And as you are deep within, you feel the heaviness of your arms and hands in the water and the heaviness of your body in the water. In a very pleasant way, you feel heavy. And you become aware of the water temperature, pleasantly warm. And you feel the warmth of the water penetrating the surface of your skin warming your flesh, warming your bones, feeling heavy and warm. Focus on your two arms and feel them heavy and warm, just the arms. And now your thighs and legs feel the warmth penetrating and the sense of heaviness as you let go. Feel the whole torso feeling warm and heavy warm and heavy. And just enjoy the state of warmth and heaviness that you have created in your mind and for your body. Feeling the relaxed state while you're able to hold that imaginative picture in your mind. But feeling it in seeming reality throughout your body. Warm and heavy. And let's just spend 60 seconds enjoying the relaxed, relaxed state that you have been able to induce through warmth and heaviness.
feeling warm and heavy. And focus again on your nose, breathing in cool air and breathing out warm air. Begin moving your fingers and your toes here in this room. Move your fingers, move your toes. And when you're ready, gently open your eyes, coming all the way back. Now some people say to me, it didn't work. And it may not have. Any skill requires the work of practice, practice, practice. In other words, some people's bodies have been habitually agitated for a long time. I mean, the average age in the room is about 25, so you've lived at least 25 years of life, and they may not have been always pleasant. And therefore, it may take time and effort and repetition before the relaxation response actually works. And you don't have to use every modality. You'll find a modality that fits you. It might be breathing, it may be imagery, it may be this particular exercise we did, it may be focusing on a concept, but remember, you always must have a goal. And remember, the goal isn't relaxation. The goal is relaxation for a purpose. And that purpose is that you express yourself in life with people, in relationships, optimally. That you allow your neshama to flow optimally so it can touch the next person in the most appropriate and wonderful way. Always have higher goals for meditative practice. Now I'm going to pause before we engage the third exercise for any thoughts or questions or comments that you may have so we can perhaps share. Is there anything? Yes. Nishima is to breathe, yes. Thank you for that great information. Um, previously I've heard of the word hipodadu with a D. Is that different than... Yes, it is. Although it's similar in sound, hisboidadus and hisboinanus, it's an utterly different word. The shoresh that I said earlier is bina, but from his boidadus, the shorish is badod, and it means to be left alone. And it's a format that's used amongst some groupings, especially the Bratzlav Hasidim, of being alone with God and talking to God in a once a very different approach. 
Okay, so excellent exercise, first of all, fantastic. Uh, so basically you're saying that uh, basically you have to have a goal and the relationship should be done for a purpose. And that purpose is really for you to get better relationships with your <coughs> members, your friends. That's one of the purposes, yeah. In other words, the purpose is bigger than simply what the exercise achieves. The ultimate goal is that our relationship with the existence, with creation, with Hashem, and Hashem's creations be optimized. So we've got to have the big picture. As I said the other day to some audience, some of you might have been there, a lot of people come to me and say, Label, I want to become, I want to become masterful. I want to become strong. I want to become wonderful. I want to become fit. Or to put it more spiritually, I want to grow. I want to evolve. And I respond to the person and say, why are you so selfish? And they sort of stand back and say, what have I said wrong? I want to grow. I want to develop. I want to evolve. What's wrong with that? And I say, it's pure selfishness. That's only to do with you. I want, it's all about I want, I want this and I want that. What is it that you want it for? You want it because you want your body to look beautiful? You want to feel the moment of satisfaction of being in a relaxed state? That's all self, that's all ego. You want to have a higher purpose. You want to grow and evolve to be a better husband to be a better wife, to be a better parent, to be a better citizen, to be a better contributor to Hashem's creation. That other-centeredness rather than self-centeredness. It's not what I want to be, it's what I can achieve for others that you want to grow, evolve, etc. That's terribly important, the other-centeredness rather than the self-centeredness. Yes. If you're working on a, a particular concept, like, you know, when I'm, if someone is writing something or you're doing your books, is this a technique that can uh, substitute for that or is it better for that? In other words, can you actually uh, look at a complex subject while meditating rather than in the more uh, awakened state? Yes, absolutely. When you know yourself better and you're familiar with a range of modalities, you might find that certain modalities work better for the purpose at hand. So you're absolutely correct, but that requires a little bit of practice and repertoire, and most importantly, to know oneself and understand oneself. That's terribly important. Every single individual in existence is unique. There's no two of you. There never has been, isn't, and never will be. You're a gift to the world. And unless you know yourself, you can't be a gift and a present to the world. Self-understanding, which is what the Sefer Tanya is so very, very good for, because it provides us with a wonderful, a much wider personality analysis in one's place in the world than most of Western society's attempts at that. Last question, we'll do another exercise. Yes. Um, thank you 
use of the... Sorry, the use of the... Yeah. No, not necessarily. I use the technique of allowing you to focus on warmth and cold of the breath through the nose. Nothing magical about that, nothing holy about that, nothing Jewish about that. It's a technique to allow you to focus on something other than what you might have had wandering in your mind before. So others use sound for that purpose. But it's only a mechanical tool. There's nothing specific. If anyone tells you, oh, this sound is the sound of creation, forget it. Get very far away from that person. Okay. Okay, we'll make this the last one. I just had the 10 minute wind up three minutes ago and I want to do another exercise. Yeah. You talked about focus and, and Judaism, like bringing that into your meditation um, of like a Jewish mantra that you put your intention behind. I was wondering if you could give an example of what one of those mantras could be. No, I don't use mantras. I don't even use the word. I try to stick to Jewish words, quite frankly. Um, but I know what you mean. Um, but if you find that focusing on a, a phrase or a word is useful, and you've been doing uh, formats of meditation where that's been central, just choose any word from the Chumash and use that as a substitute, because every word in the Chumash is a name of God. So try to use the word Shema. That's as good a word as any. Any word you choose is good. As, a, as I said to the lady over there, there's no such thing as the mantra that is you. Forget that. Although TM says it is, Labour Wolf says it's not. Okay. All right. Let's do one last exercise. So once again, and this is for Ahavat Yisrael, mutual love to each other and to the world. Gently close your eyes. And once again, focus on your breath entering the nose and exiting. And focus again on the difference in temperature, cool air entering, warm air exiting. And become aware of a light source inside your head space, a source of light, pleasant, warm, the seat of your nefesh elokit, your godly soul in your head. See it as a source of light. Increase the intensity of the light so it begins to pleasantly light up your whole facial area down to your neck so it feels light, bright, pleasantly warm. Increase the intensity further so it begins to flow down your neck into your chest and back space. 
feeling the light inside your upper torso. And now intensify the light further and allow it to flow down to your thighs and legs and through your arms, feeling the brightness of the light flowing from the center of your head down now to the extremities of your body, fingers and toes. And you might feel some tingling in the fingers as you focus on the light, warming and lighting up your body so that your body now appears almost transparent with a beautiful light emanating. Intensify the light further so now it begins to flow through your skin, creating an aura around you of your light, your neshama. Intensify the light source in your head even more so that the aura stretches out and begins to encompass people in this room, others, being embraced by your aura, which reaches out and envelops everybody in this room. Intensify the light even more so that your aura stretches out into the world allowing your signature, your neshama, to can be a, a conduit of goodness in the world, your personal contribution. And feel the warmth of your love for your brothers and sisters, wherever they may be, right through to Eretz Yisrael. You are right now making a contribution to their lives with your aura, your neshama. You encompass the whole world while seated here in this room. Be aware that you can do this at any time and allow your giftedness to be part of the positivity of making the world a better place.
come back here into the room. Begin moving your fingers and your toes. And when you're ready, gently open your eyes, coming all the way back. We did that rather quickly because of lack of time. We have to wind up. But I'm hoping what this morning has provided is at least widening the horizons of what meditation might be from a Jewish vantage point. And I want to repeat again, meditation is a nebulous word that doesn't mean much. It does mean focusing. And the way we focus is to use different modalities and then, as a consequence of those modalities, to have a higher purpose. All Jewish meditation has a higher purpose. His boinanus is to be able to study a wisdom teaching, integrated within our own being, own it, and then behaviorally express it in the world. Be wise. I hope that the session has been of some assistance to you. Thank you very much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.